This morning I'd like to speak to you in the beginning from Acts chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Acts 1, 1, 2, and 3. The book of Acts was written by Luke from the standpoint of the human writer. But always remember that all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. These words that he wrote, he wrote as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. He says, The former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days as speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If you read the last chapter of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the last two chapters of John, you will read about events in which the Lord Jesus Christ was involved in, interaction between Christ and his disciples post-resurrection. Now, the four Gospels give us a biography of Christ, but there's a difference in their biography than the biography you might read of men in general. First of all, sometimes biographies are written, I guess, before people die, but generally speaking, I think biographies are written about people after they pass away, and when they get to the end of the book, they will tell you that they died. In the beginning of the book, they'll tell you when they were born, where they were born, all kind of details of their life, and they come to the end, and they will tell you where they died, when they died, and how they died, and that's it. But that's not true with Jesus because there's more to his life than his death. There's his resurrection. As we read here this morning in these first three verses, the first chapter of Acts, you'll find that for a span of 40 days, he showed himself unto his disciples. After his passion, he showed himself unto his disciples by many infallible proofs. Now, we're not told what all those infallible proofs were. We don't have to be told. We see some of the proofs. We see some of the evidences. But it says by many infallible proofs. There were proofs that were infallible that we are not informed about. See, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might say, was the greatest evidence that he was who he said he was. That he was God's beloved son, the son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, concerning uh, his son, Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, who was born according to the seed of David. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Notice that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. But let's suppose when Christ was resurrected that he went right on into glory then that he didn't show himself to anyone. There was no eyewitnesses of his resurrection. There'd be no real proof that the disciples then and since then could use to prove that he was the Son of God. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He spent 40 more days on this earth. Now, 40 in the Bible is a span of time that shows completeness concerning whatever's under consideration. For example, 
we go to the book of Genesis chapter 7 and we find here where the Lord is speaking to Noah. And he's informing Noah about his purpose or his plan to destroy the earth by a flood. And he said in Genesis 7, 4, he says, For I will cause it to rain upon the earth. Now notice, he says, I will cause it to rain. Up to this time, the earth was watered with a mist. It never really had actually rained, but it's God who caused it to rain. Now, oftentimes it rains simply because, you know, God in his creation from this point forward established things to where this earth could be watered so that we could continue to live. But sometimes God can literally intervene and cause it to rain when if he had not, it would not have rained. Or God can cause it not to rain, as we find many examples in the, in the Bible of this. How God caused it to rain, caused it not to rain. He withheld rain in the days of Elijah the prophet for three and a half years. Then he caused it to rain. You notice, if you read the last verses of James chapter 5 about Elisha, it says he was a man of like passions like as we were, or are. And he said he prayed that it would not rain, it rained for three and a half months. Then he prayed again that it would rain, and it did rain. God caused it to rain the second time. He withheld the rain the first time. God has the power, of course, to do this. So God says, I will cause it to rain. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. It did not rain for 39 days and 39 nights. It did not rain for 41 days and 41 nights. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, just like God said that it would. Because God caused it to rain, and God stopped the rain after 40 days and 40 nights. We take a look at Moses. Moses' life is divided up into three 40-year segments. Moses died at 120. As we study his life, we study that he spent the first 40 years of his life in the land of Egypt. Then we find he spent his middle 40 years of his life on the backside of a desert, watching over sheep as a shepherd in Midian. And that's where God called him, spoke to him out of the burning bush and told him to go into Egypt and to bring my people out of there. Moses obeyed, went down to Egypt, brought the Lord's people out of there. They crossed the Red Sea. And then they spent what? 40 years in the wilderness, didn't they? All right, why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Because when they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is an 11-day journey from Egypt to right there at the border of Canaan, they decided to send spies into the land. When they sent spies into the land, the spies spent how many days in the land? 40 days. 40 days spying out the land. One of those two spies was a man by the name of Joshua, and the Bible specifically tells us Joshua was 40 years old. And he went into the land of Canaan and he spotted out for 40 days. They came back and Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. They gave an honest report, a good report. But the other 10 brought back an evil report. And the evil report was that there's giants in the land. And he says there's great walled cities in the land. And we be not able to take the land, even though it's the promised land. Even though God brought us out to bring us in, he says, we be not able to go in because there's giants and there's great walled cities. 
Listen, there's always been giants and great walled cities in our lives. But we need to know what God's word says about it. There's nothing that can stop God from fulfilling his word. But the people listened to the ten rather than the two. And God sent a judgment upon them. And they would spend how many years in the wilderness? Forty. He said, I'm going to give you one year for every day. You spent 40 days spying out the land, brought back an evil report. People listened to the evil report of the ten rather than the report of the two. I want you to know, the two did not deny there were giants in the land. The two did not deny there were great walled cities in the land. They gave a clear, honest report. But when those ten said, we be not able, Joshua and Caleb says, we be well able. Well able. Not just able, we be well able because they weren't looking to themselves. They were looking to God. So the Lord sent a judgment. One year for every day, you spent 40 days spying out the land, you'll spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And I was looking at some of the expressions about this a couple of days ago. The Bible says they walked in the wilderness 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Saying God led them in the wilderness for 40 years. God led them in all that wandering. All right? But also God provided and sustained them for 40 years. Now, if you want to see one of the greatest examples of God's power and God's providence in the Bible, study that. Not for four days, not for 40 days, but for 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness, and God took care of them by bringing water out of a rock and sent down manna from on high. He made sure their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out. They had shoes that lasted for 40 years. Now you go and try to buy some running shoes and walking shoes. They will tell you you need to change them out every six months. Of course, they want to see another pair of shoes. You need to change them out every six months. Of course, it depends on how much you use them, how often you need to change them out. I don't know of anybody that's using running shoes where they've been running in them for 40 years. God sustained them, took care of them for 40 years where the clothes and the shoes never wore out. Water came out of the rock. Manna came down from on high. He took care of them. He fed them. He gave them something to drink. He sustained them for 40 years, right? 40 years. Now Moses reaches the age of 120. His third 40-year segment. Now that's not the only time that Moses was associated with 40, with the number 40. I go to the 24th chapter of Exodus. And you'll find where Moses goes on top of Mount Sinai. On top of Mount Sinai, he will be with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He's on top of that mountain. And on top of that mountain, he receives the law, the Ten Commandments on two tables of stone. He also receives detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle. From chapter 25 to chapter 40. All right. 16 chapters, 25 to 40, is all details about the tabernacle. And Moses is seated on top of the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down from that mountain. And coming down from the mountain, the children of Israel, had, when he was out of their sight, they said, we know not if this man is coming back or not. So that's when they got Aaron to make the golden calf. They took all the earrings and everything. I mean, they've just seen the ten plagues in Egypt. 
They just seen the Red Sea open up and allow them to come across dry shod without the loss of one. They just seen the Red Sea go back together and destroy an entire Egyptian army, horses and chariots. And now they make a golden calf. When Moses comes down the mountain, he is so distraught about it. He takes those two tables of stones and casts them upon the mountain and breaks them. A little bit later on, we come uh, in the book of Exodus to chapter 34. And you're going to find where Moses goes back up the mountain again. And the Lord told him to bring him two hewn stones up there. And then God wrote the Ten Commandments again. The Bible says he wrote them with his finger. He took his finger and wrote Ten Commandments in two tables of stone. He spent 40 days and 40 nights up there. It specifically tells us here he had nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Now, you can't go 40 days without something to eat and something to drink today. I couldn't. I wouldn't last. You wouldn't either, right? You can go along without food and you can water, but you can't go without food and water for 40 days and live. But Moses did. He was on top of that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat. He did not drink for 40 days and 40 nights. To about the sustaining power of God. He went up there. And spent 40 days and nights, two different times. The second time, specifically, we're told, nothing to eat and nothing to drink. By the way, just interesting, a little inf- interesting information here. To me, anyway, Abraham had a man by the name of Isaac. Isaac got married when he was 40. He married Rebecca when he was 40. He wasn't in a big hurry to get married. Young people today seem like they just really in a hurry you get hitched. Better take your time. Make sure you got the right one. Isaac got the right one. He was 40. His brother Esau married a woman named Judith when he was 40. Both of them were 40 years old when they got married. David reigned over Israel for 40 years. Seven in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. Solomon's son reigned over Israel for 40 years. 40 is a number in the Bible showing a complete range of time in which things get done and things get accomplished. All right, Moses dies at 120. I look in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, and you're going to find where the Philistines and the Israelites have faced off against one another, and the Philistines have a champion by the name of Goliath, a little giant. The Bible says he presented himself before Israel for 40 days. 40 days he presented himself day after day after day after day before Israel with the challenge that I'll represent the Philistines, you send a representative and we'll battle and whoever loses will be the servants to the winner. He did that for 40 days. 40 days. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, we read uh, this uh, event taking place in the life of Elijah. Uh, when we get to the 19th chapter, we find where Elijah's already called fire down from heaven, you know, that consumed the offering, etc. He has slow, slow, slew the uh, false prophets of Baal. But we come to chapter 19, we find where Jezebel issues out a threat against him that his life would be like that of the false prophets by that same time the next day. Now, here's Elijah. No wonder James tells us he's a man of like passions like you and I are. Because you would have thought maybe Elijah wouldn't give a second thought to this threat from Jezebel after seeing God's power demonstrated like he did. He knew God had withheld the rain for three and a half years. He knew God had given rain when he prayed again. He knew he prayed to God and God sent fire down from heaven that consumed the offering. 
and the, the, the bullock and the stones and the wood of the altar and licked up the water. It was in the trench. Seen all of that. Experienced all of that. He runs into the wilderness, sits down on a juniper tree and expresses his desire to the Lord to take his life. He goes to sleep. The Lord sends an angel. The angel wakes him up, says, Arise and eat. And over there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water. Pretty simple meal, right? A very simple meal. A cake and water. There's a lot of simple meals described in the Bible. You remember the case of Daniel and the Hebrew children? Whenever they were in Babylonian captivity, Daniel chapter 1, they're in Babylonian captivity. And uh, we find where uh, they had been separated. Uh, they were recognized as being exceptional people. Exceptional people. Even though they were the captivity, they were exceptional. And they were given a diet of the king's meat and the king's wine. The very best they had to offer in that day. But Daniel knew that was against the dietary laws of God, number one. Plus it had been a compromise, number two. He could have took the attitude, well... What choice do I have? I'm in captivity. I'm a prisoner over here. What choice do I have but obey the king? Well, he had a choice, and he looked to God. Now, that reminds me of something. <clears throat> in the Psalms, we find where David says, The foundations be destroyed. What shall the righteous do? And so I'm asked this question more lately than I have been in a long time. With everything going on around us, what in the world can we do? Well, what you can do is what God's people have always done. It's real simple. It's not complicated. You draw nigh to God. He'll draw nigh to you. You study the Word of God. You, you pray. You lean upon the Lord. You rely upon the Lord. You commit everything to the Lord, knowing He's got all power both in heaven and earth, and He can shield you just like He told Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And the wicked of this world are doing all they can presently and have been throughout history as far as that's concerned in destroying the foundations, my friend, that God has established in His Word. If a foundation is destroyed, we're in trouble, right? A building is no stronger than the foundation in which it rests. A foundation is, determines the size of the structure. It determines the strength of the, of the structure. It determines the shape of the structure. The Lord ended the Sermon on the Mount that way. I'll get back to Darren chapter 1. hadn't forgot it. Come over here to the 7th chapter of the book of Matthew. The Lord concludes the Sermon on the Mount like this. He that heareth my sayings and doeth them, I like unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. When the storm come, the rain came, the winds came, the house stood firm because it had a solid foundation underneath it. But I like that man who heareth my sayings but doeth them not to a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the rains came and the winds came, his house came apart because he had a sandy foundation. You see the importance of a foundation? Psalms 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord keep the house, they labor in vain that, that build it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. If the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? We still got God to call upon, don't we? Has God gotten weaker? Has God gotten less uh, concerned? I'm telling you, he's still God. God doesn't change. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. And God, my friends, can intervene and overrule at any time, in any situation, and take care of it and take care of you. Don't ever forget that. Now, Daniel chapter 1. What did Daniel do? Daniel said, he went to the prince of the eunuchs, and he said unto them, unto him, 
He says, just let us have a diet of water and pulse for 10 days. Pulse was the seeds of peas and beans. That's what they were going to eat for 10 days. Now all the rest of them was going to eat the very best of king's wine and best of the king's uh, 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 meal. Whatever it was, they were going to have the very best, my friends. It came from the household of the king. After 10 days, when the examination took place, Daniel and the Hebrew children, their, their face and their countenance were much fairer, much more beautiful, more healthy than all the rest of them. And all they'd had was water and, and seeds. I'm telling you, that just wouldn't appeal to me. That just wouldn't appeal to me at all. You know, when people sometimes give you vitamins and say, well, this will take care of a uh, substitute for this food or that food, it doesn't with me. <laughs> You're not going to fool me. I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. That's just a pill right there in the plate. <laughs> the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah arose. He ate that, went back to sleep. He was awakened again by the angel. He ate, and the Bible says, he traveled in the strength of that meal for 40 days and 40 nights. The strength of what meal? Water and a cake. Not, not a cake of dessert. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, you know, made out of meal or whatever. In this meal that God provided... He traveled in the strength of that meal for 40 days and 40 nights. You'd be surprised what you can do when the Lord gives you the strength to do it. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, there's just, I see every single day, I'm just too weak to face the challenges of life in my own. But when the power of God, my friends, I can face it. That's why we read in Proverbs 28:1, for the righteous are as bold as a lion. The righteous are what? Their bows align, not in themselves, but in the power that God gives them, the strength God gives them. God can replace your weakness with strength and your fear with courage. And we'll see that, Lord willing, in just a moment. Then we come over here to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. In the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's baptized in Matthew chapter 3. We find when the Bible says the Spirit led Jesus up into the top of the mountain in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink for 40 days and 40 nights. Then Satan appears. And I'm telling you, Satan is on the, on the move today. Satan is making his appearance today. And Satan appears and says, If thou be the Son of God, cast these stones what, in what, into bread. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. What a temptation. You got the ability, if you're the son of God, cast these stones into bread. But the Lord Jesus Christ quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He then takes him up to the height of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple there, and says, cast thyself down if thou be the son of God, for it is written in the Psalms, he shall send forth his angels, they shall lift thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And that is what the Bible says. But it's not all the Bible said over there. Jesus quoted again from Deuteronomy the second time, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. There's a difference in walking by faith and tempting the Lord, and don't you ever forget it. See, we could just say here this morning, I'm not worried about this coronavirus. We don't have to change, make any changes. We don't have to do anything. God can take care of me. God can take care of us. 
Well, he sure can. God can take care of me. He's been doing it for a long time. He's been taking care of us for a long time, right? Oh, yes, he could. But I got a little news for you this morning. God expects you to use your brain. God expects you to use your mind. He expects you to use your resources. He expects you to use your energy. He expects you to use your intellect. He expects you to use the information you have to do the best you can, and then he'll take care of you. Okay? So that's why we have what we have, our plan here in the church. That's how you need to have your own personal plan in your own personal life in this present time. God expects you to do the best you can with the information you have and then rely on him. I don't want you to forget that factor because some God's people have. They've forgotten the trust in the Lord factor. They've forgotten the have faith in the Lord factor. But having faith in the Lord and trust in the Lord is one thing. Tempting God's quite another. I've used this illustration before. We'll use it again here. I might have a long trip. Maybe I need to go to California, and I got to travel by my car. On my car, and I take a look at my car and my tires. I say about ninety percent worn out. You know, I want to get every penny's worth out of it if I can before I make a change. I can say, well, the Lord take care of me. He can get me to California and back. Can he? Of course he can. But if I got the money put on new tires, I better put on new tires. God expects me to put on new tires. See, if I look and I see those tires are getting pretty bald, and I got the money to put them on. Now, if I don't have the money and I've got to get out there, I can say, Lord, take care of me. Get me out there and back. I'd put them on if I had it, but I don't have it. And the Lord, I'd trust the Lord to take care of me. But if I got the money to put them on there and I don't do it, I'm tempting God to say he can take care of me, get me out there and get me back. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Now, he takes the Lord up to the top of the temple, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, top of the mountain rather, and says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And the Lord said for the third time, from the book of Deuteronomy. He said, Thou shalt not, uh, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now we come to a 40 day period of time between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension. And I'm telling you, a lot of important things took place in this 40 years right here before the Lord left this world. You go back and you read Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 and 21 first chapter of Acts. And you're going to find information here that relates to this 40-year period, the time of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and His ascension into glory. But before we go there, I want to go to a message the Lord preached to His disciples in John 14, 15 and 16. And in the 14th chapter of John, you're going to find where the Lord uh, told His disciples, He says, in a little while you shall see me but yet the world shall not see me. Remember that. Then a little bit further over, he's going to say to the disciples, in a little while ye shall see me, not in a little while ye shall see me. What the Lord is saying here, I'm going to be away from you for three days and three nights, but you'll see me after that. But who did he say would not see him? The world. He said, the world will not see me, but ye shall see me, because... 
I live, ye shall live also. Why would not the Lord show himself to the world? He only showed himself to his followers, to his disciples. Only to them. And it's kind of interesting to me that the Lord who had told his disciples numerous times what was going to happen didn't believe him as much as his enemy did. The Lord said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. The Bible says two verses, uh, in verse 23, it says the disciples after his resurrection believed it. But I come to the latter part of Matthew chapter 27, and I find when the Lord was crucified, that the chief priests and elders came to Pilate. This is Jewish leaders coming to Pilate. And they said, we remember this deceiver. That's how they talk about Jesus, calling him a deceiver, spelled with a capital D. This deceiver right here has said that he would rise again in three days. And lest his disciples steal his body away, we're asking for a watch. And Pilate said, notice his enemy believes him. The enemy remembers. Pilate says, you have your watch. Go and make it as sure as you can. And so what did they do? They rolled a rock, my friends, a huge rock to the entrance of that sepulcher, sealed it with a Roman seal and put Roman soldiers around it. They said, we need to have this lest his disciples come and steal his body away. Make it as sure as you can. I've always thought about that expression. Make it sure as you can. That shows a limitation, doesn't it? Make it sure as you can. You're going to find out they couldn't make it sure. They couldn't make it sure. So we find going to these chapters I've been telling you about, you put them all together to come up with the picture, you're going to find where the women come to the sepulchre of the Lord Jesus Christ from the first day of the week. And notice this about the sisters and the women. They're the last ones to leave the cross and they're the first ones to the sepulchre. They were the last ones to leave Calvary and the very first ones to show back up on the first day of the week. When they got there, or before they got there, had a chief concern. Who shall roll the rock away? They didn't think they had the strength and the power, being women there, to roll this huge boulder away from the entrance. They didn't think they had the power. Have you ever failed to do something because you didn't know who was going to roll the rock away? Something you felt like you needed to do, but there's a huge rock right in your way. Who's going to roll the rock, rock away? I think the Lord can. The Lord did, didn't he not? When they got there, the rock had all been rolled away because an earthquake had taken place. An angel came down and rolled the rock away. And they looked in and nobody was in there. Nobody was in there. The soldiers got a problem. The soldiers were to watch that sepulcher. They had a Roman seal around it. They had to watch that sepulcher lest uh, the disciples come and steal the body away. The Roman seal's been broken. The rock's been rolled away. The body is gone. But what was left? The napkin was left. The grave clothes was left. And so they take, and they don't go to Pilate. They don't go to their superiors. They go to the chief priest among the Jews with this problem. And the Jews paid them much money to say the disciples came and stole the body. That was a very poor story. How the, how the disciples going to come steal the body when it's got a 
when the seal, when the stones the sepulchre has a big rock, it has a Roman seal around it, and a soldier's watching this. How in the world the disciples going to do that? They can't do that. And then the soldiers themselves wouldn't have stole it because they're there to protect it from being gone. If anybody stole the body, they wouldn't have took the body out of the uh, out of the grave clothes and left the grave clothes. That's grave robbers don't do that. But that's the best they could come up with. Best they could come up with. So you're going to find where Mary and this other Mary are going to go and they're going to tell Peter and John what they've seen. And Peter and John are going to run. Now, on the very day of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he appears at least five different times to different ones on the day of his resurrection. And before the 40-day period of time is over, he's going to appear several more times to several other people. But I want you to notice the category of people that he appears himself to. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the opening verses. And you're going to find what Paul said. Remember how we preach the gospel unto you, wherein you stand, where you receive, wherein you stand, wherein you shall be saved. You keep in memory what we preached unto you. Remember, first of all, how we preach how Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. How Christ was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. And he's talking about the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament scripture had prophesied and taught about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, after his resurrection, he was seen. Who was he seen of? He was seen of the apostles. He was seen of Peter. He was seen above 500 brethren at one time. He was seen of James. Then he was seen of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of the apostle Paul, who was one born out of due time. Do you notice that list of people? Kind of interesting. Here in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in Luke chapter 24, you're going to find where we're told in both places that Peter saw him, but we're not given any details. We're not told when he saw him, how long he saw him, what he said to him or anything. We're just told two different times that he showed himself to Peter. So we come back to John chapter 20, and the very first person he shows him to is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now each of these things could be used for the entire sermon, but I'm going to just kind of collect them together here for you if the Lord bless me. Mary Magdalene. The Lord had cast seven devils out of Mary Magdalene, and she loved him. And they came early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. This reminds me of a couple Old Testament scriptures. We look in Proverbs 8 and 17, and Solomon the wise man said this, I love them that love me, and they that seek me early shall find me. Who finds the Lord Jesus Christ experientially? Those that seek him early. Early in the day, early in your life. You know, Ecclesiastes 12.1 says to the youth, remember thy creator in the days of thy youth. Uh, if you're going to seek him early, he's got to be on your mind when you rise from sleep, right? When you get up in the morning, he's got to be on your mind so you can seek him early. Seek him early in prayer. Seek him early in meditation. Seek him early in the reading of the word of God. And the promise is, he that seeks me early shall find me. And I love them that love me. Those who seek the Lord early is a great evidence. They love the Lord. Mary Magdalene loved the Lord. And the, early the first day of the week, she comes there. Psalms 30 and verse 5, Weeping may endure for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Weeping may endure for the night, 
I'm telling you, we all have those weeping seasons. We all have those night seasons, but I can assure you, morning's coming. <laughs> Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Mary Magdalene looked then, there's nobody in there. And then, we find where she turned around and all of a sudden Jesus was just standing there. She thought he was the gardener. He's in a glorified body. She thinks he's the gardener. And she says, tell me where you've laid him. If you'll go, I'll go there. If you'll tell me, I'll go there. Then Jesus called her name, Mary. She then instantly recognized this was not a gardener. This was a savior. This was the master. Here's Jesus. He's not in that grave. He's right here. And then the Lord told her something a lot of people think is kind of strange. The Lord said unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended unto my Father. See, this is the first day of his resurrection. He's got 40 days he's going to be on this earth. There's going to be other opportunities, Mary. There's something else I want you to do. I want you to run and tell the disciples. you got a message. Go and tell the message. And you tell the disciples that I go to my God and your God, and I go to my Father and your Father. But it was going to be 40 days down the road before that was going to happen. And then we come to Matthew chapter 27, you're going to find where Mary and another Mary meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And on this occasion, he allows them to fall down and to embrace him and to worship him. Different situation. Another, another appearance of the Lord. The Lord is not showing himself to Pilate, not showing himself to Herod, not showing himself to chief priests, scribes, and elders, not showing him to all the religious leaders. He's showing him to the common people, to those who loved him and followed him and ministered to him while he was living before going to the cross. Okay, you got Mary, you got the two Marys, you got Peter. And then we find the Lord comes in John chapter 20, verse 21. He comes to a place where the disciples have met behind closed doors. Notice the re reading here. The disciples have met behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. I think I can understand that, I believe. Here's somebody you've been with for about three to three and a half years. You've heard him teach, you've heard him preach, you've seen him do the miracles. But you also, also saw the Roman soldiers come and take him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. You also saw him, uh, you know, being buffeted and, and treated without mercy, just uh, 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 treated very cruelly. And then you've seen him go to Calvary and you've seen him crucified between two thieves. And you've been walking with him and following him for three and a half years. I can understand why they're afraid. They're behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And then you can go to Luke chapter 24 as well as John chapter 20, 20 right here. And you'll find where the Lord appeared in their midst. Notice what didn't happen. Jesus did not knock on the door. Jesus did not knock on the door like Peter. Remember Peter in Acts chapter 12? When Peter was released from prison, when God delivered him out of prison, he went to where the church had been meeting, praying for him, and he's knocking on the door, and a damsel by the name of Rhoda comes to the door. She recognizes his face, but she don't let him in. <laughs> Peter can't get in unless they let him. Jesus can get in, and he did. And he did. He's standing there in the midst. He just went right through a closed locked door, stood right there in the midst. You wonder what he said to him. He said, Peace be unto you. 
You know, there's a place for reproof. There's a place for rebuke. You know, Paul told Timothy, yes, and in season, out of season, preach the word. He said, reprove, rebuke with all long suffering and doctrine. If you read the Bible like you ought to, you're going to read verses that's going to reprove you, rebuke you, and correct you. And if the pastor's what he's supposed to be over time, there'll be messages of reproof, rebuke, exhortation, and correction. But there's a time and place for everything, and this was not the time for reproof and rebuke. They are fearful, and the Lord says, Peace be unto you. Let's look at what's the last thing Jesus said to those disciples before he went to Calvary. You go back to the last verse of John 16, 16 and 33. The Lord Jesus Christ said, The words that I have spoken unto you, I have spoken these words unto you, that ye might have peace. In this world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now you'll just let that saturate, let that soak down your mind just for a minute. The Lord says, the things I have spoken unto you, I have spoken that you might have peace in these words. Well, if you're going to have peace in those words, you've got to be familiar with them, right? You've got to read these words. He said, now in the world, you shall have tribulation. He says, but now be of good cheer, because I overcome the world. If he overcame the world, we overcome the world through him. You see, he's our representative. The last thing he says to them concerns peace. Go back a little further, John 14, 27. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave unto you. The Lord is the Prince of Peace. And he says, I'm going to leave my peace with you. The words I've spoken to you, I've spoken to you that you might have peace. And now the Lord appears to the ten. There's ten here now. It was twelve. Judas is carriage, not one of them. And there's somebody missing. There's always somebody missing. <laughs> to the discouragement of the pastor in the church too, there's always somebody missing. I just look for the day when I look out there and I say, I'm not believing this. I just cannot believe what I'm seeing. But everybody is actually here. What do you reckon that day will ever happen? I hadn't given up, Brother Junior. Somebody's always missing. But I think about Acts chapter 10 when the apostle Peter went to the house of Cornelius uh, and Cornelius told Peter, he says, we're all here to hear what you have to say. Somebody's missing. His name is Thomas. So there's 10 disciples here. The Lord said, peace be unto you. He says, for as the Father sent me, so I send you and the, may the Holy Spirit abide on top of you. And he says, second time, peace be unto you. Now, he didn't say, may you have peace. He said, peace be unto you. He commanded peace to be unto them. Just like he commanded peace when the disciples were in that ship in the, in the storm at sea. Remember that? You find this recorded over here in the third and fourth chapter of Mark. You'll find when the disciples are in the ship and Jesus Christ is asleep in the bottom of the ship and there's a great storm and the disciples are greatly afraid. And they call upon the Lord and said, Lord, carry us not that we perish. And then the Lord rebuked the sea. And here's his words, peace be still. That was not an offer to the storm. That was not a suggestion to the storm. He wasn't suggesting to the storm, would, would you please be still? He said, peace be still. And immediately the waves quit beating into the ship. Immediately the wind quit blowing. And there was perfect calm and perfect peace instantaneously. And then there was peace in the minds and hearts of those disciples, was it? In other words, God commanded peace. Right now, a lot of God's people 
have a lot of unrest. And they don't have peace. I, I, it, it concerns me. It bothers me bad. <clears throat> when I see the evidences of people being very fearful. And I'm not talking about taking anything lightly. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm telling you, if the Lord said, commands peace, peace can be there. And I want to give you, I've given it to you before, I'm going to give it to you one more time from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Be not careful for anything. That means anxious or worry. But in everything, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, which means you've got to be talking to the Lord. You know, a little talk with Jesus goes a long ways, doesn't it? <laughs> a little talk with Jesus. That's, that's you know, a, a song that's sung a lot of times, just a little talk with Jesus. Well, I can assure you, a little talk with Jesus goes a long ways. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your minds and hearts through him. Then he says, think on these things. Those things which are honest, of good report, virtue, etc., etc. Think on these things. Knowing of whom you have heard these things, learned these things, it says, then the God of peace shall be with you. The God of peace that gives you the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Those disciples were behind closed doors. They were fearful of the Jews. And Jesus appears in their midst. They got the presence of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, peace be unto you. And instantaneously, my friends, the disciples were glad when they saw him. The Lord, you go to Luke chapter 24 and you're going to find where the Lord said, look, my hands. He says, look upon my feet. And here's something somebody might say, well, you know, Brother Lawrence, it does not say anywhere in the Gospels that they ever pierced the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're right. It doesn't. But it sure tells us that in Psalms 22:16. It sure tells you that in Psalms 22:16. He says, For they've pierced my hands and my feet. And why would the Lord ask them to look at his feet if nothing out of the ordinary had ever happened to them? Every once in a while, you have to use something called common sense and reasoning. And the 22nd chapter of Psalms, 22nd Psalms, will tell you things about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ you will not read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you read about them in Psalms chapter 22. He said, Behold my hands and my feet. Now somebody missing, remember who I told you, Thomas is missing from this meeting. Eight days later, the Jews behind closed doors once again, and the Lord appears in the midst. Again, he doesn't knock. He don't ask for permission to come in. He just, he's just there. And this time he singles Thomas out. He says, Thomas, you know what? The disciples went and told Thomas. He says, Thomas, we've seen him. We've seen the Christ. He's resurrected. We've seen him. He said, except I see the nail prints in his hands and take my fingers and thrust him the nail prints of his hands and also into his side. I will not believe. The Lord singles them out and says, Thomas, behold my hands and my side. Thomas didn't have to do it. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And that's when the Lord said, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed, but more blessed is he that hath not seen and yet hath believed. The disciples here, for the second time, view the risen Lord. 
real quickly, you go to John chapter 21, and this is when Peter and six other people, seven all together, there's Peter, James, and John, Nathaniel, and three more here that go fishing. And the Lord appears to them on the shore. Remember, they caught nothing, fished all night long. And the Lord spoke unto them. The Lord is on the shore, and by the way, he's got a fire, and he's got fish, and he's got a meal there. They ain't caught a thing. They're fishing at night. They ain't caught a thing. And the Lord says, cast your nets on the right side. Now, brother, it's when we do things the right way. We cast our nets on the right side, we expect to catch something. And when they did, they caught 153 fish of such great size and quantity, yet the net did not break. And then the Lord told them, says, come and dine. You know how John's gospel starts out in John chapter 1? The Lord says, come and see. In John chapter 7, he says, come and drink. In John chapter 21, he says, come and dine. Before you can drink and before you can dine, you got to come and see. If you expect to dine and drink at the Lord's table, you got to come and see. That's the first thing. You got to come and see. He tells them, come and dine, and they came to the shore. And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ asked Peter three times if you loved him. Peter, you lovest thou me more than these? He said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He asked him that three times. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Now the Lord pulls a confession out of him three times. Asked him three times if he loved him. He said, thou knowest I love thee, Lord. He said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and feed my sheep. And then the last thing you find the Lord doing is telling his disciples to go and teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'll go with you all way, even to the end of the world. And after he gave them that commandment, we find the Lord ascends from this earth right into heaven. And now those apostles and those disciples, they have, without a shadow of a doubt, they have interacted with the resurrected Christ. They have seen him. They have touched him. They've interacted with him. They've dined with him. There could be no question. He is the resurrected Christ. And that, my friends, gave them the power to go forward in the book of Acts, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's been exactly the theme of gospel preaching for 2,000 years, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope, my friends. The only thing we got to look forward to is life in this world. Tell me, how does that excite you? Tell me, how does that excite you this morning? You know, the longer you live in this world, the more misery you see, right? The longer you live in this world, the more difficulties you see, and problems you see, and misery you see, and corruption you see, all these kind of things. And the longer you live, brother, the more and more and more in your desire, in your heart, I believe the desire is there. I'm about ready to get out of this mess. I'm about ready to get out of this mess. And when the Lord comes again, he's going to take me out of this mess. And if I fold my arms in death, my friends, before that happens, there are things that happen in this world that's worse than death itself. I firmly believe that with all of my heart. When I draw my last breath, you know what the next thing I'm going to realize? I'm going to be in the glory world. I'm going to be right there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be in his everlasting arms. I'm going to see the Lord's face for myself. I'm going to see the Savior, my friends, that I've looked for so long in this world to see. I'll see him with my eyes instead of an eye of faith. Now, I thank God he gave me the eye of faith to see him. I thank God for that. But I'm looking forward to my eyes shall behold him and not for another. And then I'll praise him eternally forevermore without any interruption from anything. What we got, Brother Junior? Hymn 146. Hymn 146.